us tonight for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll be, uh, we'll be in number nine tonight, but I want to start out by you know, kind of getting your mind moving a little bit. So have you ever noticed that? Now, I'm sure I'm positive every one of these are uh, your, you know, things that you've done before and things that you're familiar with, uh, sayings, if you will. And there may be even, you know, I tried to, I tried to think, what are some things that, you know, I do that happen in my life, but they're too specific, but I guarantee you, you have them in your life. So for instance, have you ever said something and then you said, well, knock on wood, right? Because you think that you can say whatever you want to say, but as long as you say knock on wood, then it's not going to come true. Am I the only one, right? No, that, that's pretty common, right? Or how about this? How many of you refuse to walk under a ladder? Yeah, think it's superstitious maybe that you would walk under a ladder. Have you ever been to a funeral where they said, you know, uh, Mr. Jones has passed away today and uh, unfortunately he walked under a ladder and as a result of his newfound bad luck, he has now passed away. That's never happened. How about breaking a mirror? You break a mirror and then all of a sudden you think, well, wait, next seven years I got bad luck. How about black cats? You'll turn around and go the other way if a black cat crosses the road, right? Superstitious about these weird things or uh, crossing fingers as kids. You know, we learn how if we cross our fingers, what we say doesn't really matter, doesn't mean that. See, some of you are being very pious right now. You're looking at me as though I would never do that when you just did it last week. They say that if you have an itchy left hand that you will owe somebody money soon. But if you have an itchy right hand, you will receive money soon, right? So all of you are going to go home and rub poison ivy on your right palm so you'll receive money, right? These, these are things that some of you would say, yeah, yeah, maybe I, but they're things that people have believed for a long time. But again, they've never actually come true. They've never, no one is attributed to, well, if you hadn't broken that mirror, you know, that wouldn't have happened to you. And so it, it seems like humans, uh, oftentimes we believe things to be true and we put value in them and we put action to those beliefs and they never actually come true. But yet we continue to believe and or to say those things. Like, for instance, one of the things you will often hear when people pray in church, I heard a prayer here recently and uh, they prayed for safety like 17 times as though God is in heaven saying, Oh, oh yes, okay, well then actually, yeah, I'll, I'll keep you safe today. I really wasn't planning on doing that, but now that you mention it, I guess I will, right? But we think that God's obligated to do that if we ask Him to do it. And so you'll think about this when you pray. A lot of times, this has nothing to do with prayer tonight, by the way, but a lot of times when we pray, we pray repetitiously as though if we say those things, then God is somehow obligated to do those things. And we believe in our heart that if I say them, oh, I crossed my fingers, so I didn't really mean it. We, it's the same thing, that if we do those things, we believe that God is somehow obligated to wish or to grant our wish. Uh, so we're going to see a story tonight of someone who in his life, he believed something that actually never came to pass, but he continued to believe it and it prevented him from being who God wanted him to be. And so let's jump right in. John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there's lots of people that are coming into Jerusalem. There was a feast, and they would all come into Jerusalem for the feast. So this is John 5. You know, this is right after uh, the woman at the well in John 4. Uh, this is after John 3 with Nicodemus. John 2, Jesus and the water into wine. And so Jesus has already inaugurated his ministry. They know who Jesus is. We've gone through some of these miracles of what Jesus has done. And says, verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Now, I, I just don't think a pool by a sheep gate is a good idea. So if you're thinking about installing a pool, don't put it by your sheep gate. That's just, 
that's just a bad idea. But this is what they did. And here's why they did it. Because as the sheep would come in, this is on the northern end of town, and as they would bring the sacrifice in over the, by the temple, as they would bring the animal sacrifices in, they would have the water there to, uh, to cleanse or to cleanse themselves and or the animals as they would bring them into uh, the temple. And it says, in, these, in this pool, there lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Okay, so you get the picture. There's, there's this sheep gate, and these animals that were going to be sacrificed would be brought in through this sheep gate. Now, interestingly enough, there were, were some questions about the validity of this uh, pool at Bethesda. Was this, you know, actually true? And, and so in 1956, there was a German archaeologist who lived in Jerusalem at the time, and he unearthed this pool. Pretty neat, huh? 1956. The site is in Jerusalem close to the church of St. Anne, and near it is right near the Sheep Gate, this pool is. Um, it is true to the location that we just read here in John chapter 5. There's actually sections of the pool area that they have excavated uh, with caverns and some shallow bath areas around the pool. And so in 1956, what we just read was confirmed uh, to be true. Now, this pool area uh, was a large reservoir. It was about 300 feet long. So, in your mind, imagine a football field. That's about 300 feet. And so, there's a, there's a football field swimming pool, uh, you know, that they would bring the animals by as they would take them into the temple. Now, I have to believe that this was not the cleanest of pools, Okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure there was not a chemical guy coming by once a week making sure that all the bacteria and everything, that the water was clear. But apparently inside of this pool that there there was a spring of water that would randomly erupt. And this belief began to circulate, as we'll see in just a few minutes, that when this happened, if you were the first person in the pool, you were healed. So they believed that whenever this random occurrence of this pool would erupt, that if you could get down into the pool area, you would be healed. They believed that an angel was the one that was stirring the waters. Sounds fascinating, right? Now, I want you to think this through with me. I thought about this. Think about this. There's a pool, and this pool is by the temple. And this pool has this random occurrence of water bubbling up. And when this happens, if you're blind or lame or paralyzed and you get in the water, you're healed. Now, I want you to just think this through. There's a bunch of blind, lame, and paralyzed people that are laying around the pool. And they're told, if you can be the first, you can be healed. Think about this. It is a reward for the healthiest right? If you're blind, you can't find the pool. If you're paralyzed, it doesn't matter when or if it comes up, erupts, because you can't do anything about it. So it's only the lame people who in some way are maimed or lame, you know, maybe they were born with a deformity or maybe they had an injury. They were the only ones who were capable of actually getting to the water. It was the ones that we would say potentially needed it the least who had the advantage here. So the blind people would be the last ones to know, right? If, if I'm trying to beat you and you're blind, do you think I'm going to announce to you, hey, the waters are stirring, why don't we race? Of course not. I'm not telling you. So the blind ones would be the last one to know. The paralyzed couldn't do anything about it. And so the lame were the only people who had a chance. It was the only time in a lame person's life where he would have an advantage. Now, I thought about this and I thought to myself, See, I'm a personality type one, and so I like to solve problems. And I can look at any situation and come up with my solution to it. And so I did this here. I looked at this situation, and I thought, there's an easy answer to this. There's a simple way to solve this. How about this? How about a line? How about you all just get in line? And ever, whoever got here first, you're number one in line. And then when the water stir up, who's next? And you just all jump in the water one at a time. Whenever it's your turn, boom, you jump in the water. But no, they didn't do that. How about this? Who here has the most dire problem? 
right? Wouldn't we do that? Who's in the worst shape? Who, if they're not healed, is not going to live? You get to the front of the line, ma'am. You get to the front of the line, sir. I mean, there's so many logical ways to fix this. But that's not what they did. You see, these people felt the full weight, first blank on your handout, they felt the full weight of their imperfection of sin and its effect on humanity. The full weight of their insufficiencies was visible every single time that the water stirred. And they were reminded of their inability to do anything about their problems. But the good news for them, as we're about to see, is that Jesus is present. And Jesus' nature is to work against the effects of sin. All right? Luke chapter 14 says this, He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many people. At that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Whosoever will may come. Right? So he said, oh, well, all the special invited guests have refused to come. So here's what you do. Go out and invite everyone. Compel them to come. Bring the crippled. Bring the lame. Bring the uh, paralyzed. Anyone that would like to come is welcome to come. Bring those who would be the last to be invited. These are the people that are laying beside the pool at Bethesda. And Jesus said, those are the people that I want to invite into my kingdom. You see, for all of us, we would sit here tonight and we would say, you know what? Life is unfair. We would say, life beats me up. There's all kinds of things that happen. Uh, Personal problems, financial problems, relational problems. All these issues that we would go on and on and on. And we would say there's always problems and troubles around the corner. And there's always something that's there. And life has beat me up. And now because of life, I'm lame or I'm insufficient or incapable of doing these certain things. To which Jesus said, bring the crippled, bring the blind, bring the lame. That's the ones that I want in my kingdom. You see, the world tells us it's the fit, it's the strong, it's the able that God uses in His kingdom. But that is not the case. You see, the hope of humanity is the reality that God invites us into His kingdom based upon His abilities, not mine. So if you're sitting here tonight and you say, you know what, life has beat me up, you are in prime position for God to do something in your life. If you sit there and say, you know what, I'm not as strong as that person next to me, or I'm not as able as that person who's sitting beside me, or you know, who's my friend, or whatever it may be, you are in prime position. No one stands up. The only person I know of in Scripture who did, and they failed, was Solomon that says, I'm good enough, I can do it, and we saw how that worked out, Right? God wants those people who say, you know what, I'm not capable of doing this. And he says, that's perfect recipe for success. And so in verse 5, it says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now listen, he's not the only person there. All right? There's all these people. If this place is what they say it is, there's more than one person there. Right? There are thousands of people there. Imagine if you're someone who's blind, who's paralyzed, who's lame, and you hear about the pool of Bethesda. You know what you're doing? Just like what Pastor Brian preached about a few weeks ago. You're, you're calling up your friends. You're getting your family members to put you on a mat and haul you down to that pool and roll you off in that water, right? Whatever you have to do to get to the pool of Bethesda, that's what you are doing. There are dozens, hundreds, thousands of people at this pool of Bethesda, and yet, One person is who Jesus talks about. One person. 
One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, this guy, by my metric, remember, waiting in line, who got here first, who's in the worst condition, he's first in line. 38 years, this guy should be top of the list for waiting this long. For 13,000, listen to this, for 13,870 days, he had hoped for the hopeless to happen. 13,870 days, he's waiting for the hopeless to happen. You see, he thinks that when these waters stir up and I hop off in this water, bam, I'm good, I'm healed. Can you imagine the despair that you would have after 38 years of believing something was possible within your reach if you were just good enough, if you would just try harder, then if you got in that water, bam, you're healed. 38 years. And yet now, Standing before him, right in front of him, the epitome of hope exists. You see, here's what's interesting. There's no Greek manuscripts, biblical or otherwise, that confirm that this reality at the pool of Bethesda would heal you is actually true. In other words, there's no account that stirring the waters healed anyone. None whatsoever. Josephus, no historians, no one speaks of the fact that this pool would actually heal you. Now, is that not fascinating? After about a year or six months or five years or maybe even ten, when person after person after person hopped off into that water and they limped out just like they limped in, I'm leaving. I'm going home. You went in blind and you still can't see. I don't believe the stirring of the waters anymore. This guy, imagine the hopelessness of which he has to feel that for 38 years, people went into the water, they raced him into the water, they beat him into the water, they knocked him out of the way into the water, and yet they weren't healed. And yet he continued to try over and over and over. The more people that came out of the water that were healed, think about this, the more people that walked out with sight that were blind, the more people that walked in that were crippled that were no longer, the more your resolve to get in that water would be, right? You would do whatever it took to get in that water if healed people actually came from the water, right? The greatest evidence for the existence of God and salvation is what? What is it? It is a changed life. If you came to this church week after week and year after year and we were all still stinking the same, guess what you would do? You would leave. Anybody in their right mind would say, nothing changes people there. It's not true. I'm out. Think about this. 11 people changed the world upside down for the gospel of Jesus. Why did they do that? Because it was true. If it weren't true, we would not be here today because there would come a point. It's just like the empty tomb. I mean, we could talk about this all day. If Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus' body still exists, guess what? After 2,000 years, somebody's going to produce it. But no, they haven't. And why is that? Because it doesn't exist. Because he did, in fact, rise from the grave after three days. It is because they're never... I mean, even wouldn't you think at this point that somebody would show up and say, I have it, and it would be the body of someone else? But they did not do that. Because of why? Because of evidence of change. That there once was a dead body in the tomb, and there is no longer. It's the same for you and me. That when Jesus intersects our life and he transforms us, we will change. So many times people show up to church week after week and month after month and year after year, and they are exactly the same. It is just like this man. For 38 years, he believed that change would happen, and yet no one changed. It's not possible. It's irrational, and it is illogical that he would wait for 38 years. But he did. Still believing a lie. You see, we look at this blind, we look at these blind people, we look at these lame people, we look at the paralyzed man, and we say, that guy's crazy. No one would do that. And yet, we're all blinded by our own sin. 
We're lame because of the effects of our own sin. And you know what? There's a lot of people who are paralyzed by fear because of sin and live a life in prison to that every single day. Every single day. It's easy for us to look in, in a rearview mirror and say, well, who would wait for 38 years? And, and yet, people would look at your life and say, well, how, why is it that you say you're following Jesus, but you're just like everybody else? Why is it that you say you're just like Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you follow Jesus, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and yet you live just like the world? Well, how is that possible? We're all blinded. Listen, no, no one in this room is above sin. Every one of us have been entangled by sin. Every one of us have been paralyzed by sin. And if it weren't for Jesus standing in front of us and singling us out, just like he did John, uh, Nicodemus in John 3, that we would still all be lame and paralyzed from our sin. You see, our flesh and the enemy would tell us that if we would just try harder, that we'd be better. That we'd be faster if we were smarter then we could get ahead in life. If we would just try harder. You know what the world says? We just got to lace up your bootstraps there, pal. You got to try harder. You got to do more. You got to be better. Isn't that what behavioral modification says to the person who thinks that they can uh, act their way into heaven? You see, it's all a facade. And in all of our attempts, it still leaves us deficient. And here's what happens. Our abilities, I'm sorry, our inabilities become our identities. Our inabilities become our identities. So what happens is we begin to use the things that we can't do as excuses and crutches, and that becomes who we are. I mean, think about this. The things that weigh us down often become the things by which we are known by. The things that weigh us down are often the things of which we become known by. I I thought just real quickly of a few things of some people in Scripture and the things that they're known by. Moses. What was Moses? Well, Moses wasn't good at speaking, right? We all know that. We read in Scripture. That's what Moses is known for. Moses says, you know what, God, I'd love to do that for you, but I actually can't speak very well. To which God said, no problem, I'll send Aaron with you. Right, but Moses is known for that. How about Paul? Paul was known for what? A thorn in his flesh. That there was something in his life, an inability, whatever it was, that prevented him, and it identified a lot of his life. How about Thomas? We would say, well, Thomas is known for doubting. Doubting Thomas. How would you like that name for the rest of your life? Doubting Thomas. But what is he known for? An inability, a lack of faith, all of a sudden becomes his identity. David, what's David known for? Well, a lot of things, but specifically Bathsheba, right? And so his inability to keep the law, to stay righteous, identified him for the rest of his life and for, forever. Lastly, how about Jonah? What's Jonah known for? A great preacher? No. I mean, look at what happened at Nineveh, but is that the identity of Jonah? No, the identity of Jonah is God told me to do something, and I ran the other way. His inability to do what God called him to do became his identity. So the question is, what is my inability that is my identity? What is it in my life that I'm not capable of doing that I'm allowing to identify who I am? I'm telling you, you should, you should circle that and spend some time thinking about it. Because in our lives, I'm convinced of this, there's so many more things that could be accomplished for the kingdom if we would stop blaming our inabilities for what God could do in our life. Well, God, I can't do it because I'm not this or I'm not that. I've been sitting here for 38 years, God. You see, here's the deal. When you look at Moses, when you look at Paul, you look at Thomas, you look at David, you look at Jonah, and you say, Matt, that's not fair. You're right. They're known for those things, but they did far greater things for the kingdom. You're right. They did. And you know why? Because their inabilities did not disqualify them for usefulness in the kingdom. That they didn't allow that to prevent them from being who God wanted them to be. They were still useful in the kingdom because they didn't allow that to be the case. Their inabilities did not disqualify them. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. 
He said to me, my grace, this is on the board, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, anti-culture today, right? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul boasted about the fact that he had inabilities. And so what we would say then is weakness is an opportunity for God to do work in our lives. That we would be able to accomplish something for the kingdom. Because remember, God does the things in which God gets the glory for. But we got, as Pastor Tony preached a couple years ago, we got a lot of glory pirates out here that want to run around and take the glory from God and use their abilities to become their identity. But here's what Jesus said. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? That is an odd question, isn't it? For 38 years, you've been lying by the pool of Bethesda, and everyone has outran you to the pool. And God knows everything, right? And Jesus shows up as the manifestation of who God is, and he asks the question, do you want to be healed? Now, today, as we look at this, we would look and say, yeah, why is he asking him that question? Of course. Here's this guy laying by the pool. Jesus didn't choose him because of his potential, It seems odd that he would ask this question. Of course he wants to be healed. Every one of us would say, yes. But does he? Does he want to be healed? Here's what Leo Tolstoy said. He says, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Think with me for a second here. Does he really want to be healed? healed. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. You see, when our inabilities become our identities, we begin to cater to them. We begin to give in to them. We resign to the fact that our circumstances aren't changing, and we become what we can't do. We become that. It becomes our excuse, right? But here's the deal. Listen, our destiny is not determined by our circumstances. Whether or not he wanted to be healed, all the circumstances that were involved in this situation, none of those determined what Jesus was about to do in his life. Our destiny is not determined by our circumstances, As a matter of fact, here's here's what I would say about this. I would say that most people don't want to change. I would say that they want the appearance of change or the feeling of change without the effect of change. Because it's actually hard to change. Right? You ever had a habit that you couldn't break? It's hard, isn't it? That we get in these ruts, we get in these routines, we get these groove patterns in our brain, and we begin to do the same thing over and over, and all of a sudden, guess what? We can't stop it. And we get in these patterns that we can't overcome, and so what we do is we appear that we've changed. And we, we allow everyone around us to believe that there's something different, when in reality, nothing has changed. And so here's what I believe. I believe the man that's been laying there for 38 years, I believe he doesn't want to get in the water. I believe he's gotten to a point in his life that he's okay with the lot that he's been given in life, and he's resolved himself that I'm not going to change. But I tell you what, when that water stirred, I'm going to pretend I'm trying to get in there. And everybody else is going to say, oh, poor guy, he's been there 38 years, and he's really putting forth an effort. But is he? You see, so many people come up with excuses about things that they can't do or they won't do. Oh, you know, I would, I would do this, but my spouse won't come to church. Well, I would, you know, do this, but my job is too bad. And we have all of these things that begin to identify us, and they compound, and all of a sudden, we are known by that thing. It can become a crutch of sorts. And here's what's happened in this guy's life. 
I believe the first few times he gave it a shot. Maybe the first few years he gave it a shot. And then he realized, I'm never going to get in that water. And so he began to uh, lose hope and the ability to dream. The ability that he one day may walk again. The ability that he one day may be able to see clearly again. Whatever it may be. He, he began to dream about those things early on. But those dreams began to fade. Way off in the sunset. And he began to give up hope that anything would ever be different. You see, I believe that a lot of people encounter sin. And they can't overcome that sin. And the hope that that sin would ever be changed in their life begins to fade. And they begin to believe that that is actually a part of their life for the rest of their life. Jesus is standing right in front of this guy. And what does he say? He says, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. He says, I want to get in, but I can't. Can you imagine the scene of of what's happening here? That when the water stirred, can you imagine the hysteria of everyone trying to get into that water? And how does, it, how does it count? If your toe touches the water first, then you win, and all of a sudden you're healed? Or you have to be fully submerged, right? Was it, was it a Methodist versus a Baptist thing? That was a baptism joke, by the way. Right? Did they have to be fully submerged or sprinkled? Like, what does it have to be? That was, that was too soon for you guys. Right? Right? So what was it? What, what, was the, what was the metric by which they would say, hey, you're healed when the water is stirred? That chaos ensues. Or did it? I want you to think about this. We say, well, well, did he want to be healed? I'm not sure. Well, did, well, did chaos begin to happen? You see, when we rely on our excuses to explain our situation, guess what happens? You stop trying to change. You stop trying to change. You let your excuses be what it is in your life. And you no longer put forth an effort. How many times do you think he had said that same thing? Remember, what does it say at the beginning? That there is a festival, there's a feast going on. And what are they doing? Tons of people have flooded the city. Tons of people have flooded the city. And what are those people doing in the city? They're coming to the temple. And where is the pool? By the temple. And so all these people have come by year after year after year. And they say, oh, look at this poor guy right here. We should help him out. And he would say, I don't have anyone to get me in the waters. And when somebody, when the water is stirred up, I can't get down there myself. Over and over, he's used his excuses to explain his situation. He's repeated this line over and over and over, to which I would say these are learned and repeated excuses. The question that I would ask you tonight is, are there any learned and repeated excuses in your life why you are not allowing God to change you? Well, here's why. Because it's easier to blame than it is to change. It's easier to put the fault on someone else. How many times, I I tell you, it, it, it happens all the time. It happened this past week. It happens all the time. Somebody who hasn't been to church for a while says, you know, somebody reaches out to them, hey, you know, we've been missing you, what's going on? Why haven't you been to church? And they say, oh, well, I would come, but, you know, so-and-so didn't do this for me, or so-and-so did that to me, or whatever it may be. It happens all the time. And it's easy to justify because, well, I can blame somebody. And if I can blame somebody, then I'm not responsible for my own actions, right? That's how this works. And so they began to blame. They say, oh, well, you know, if somebody would put me in the water, but I don't have anybody to do that. I I sure wish somebody would help me out. Here's what we have to learn from this. Do not allow excuses to replace facts in your story. Don't allow excuses to replace facts. What are the facts of the story? The only fact you need to know in the story is Jesus is standing right in front of you, sir. That's all you need to know. Jesus is standing right in front of you. Who cares who puts you in or doesn't? You have the man who's standing right in front of you who just last week a lady touched the hem of his garment and was healed before he said anything. She just got in the proximity of the Savior and she was changed. 
Sir, you don't need anyone to pick you up. Sir, you don't need to blame anyone else. Ma'am, you don't need to allow the excuses to happen in your life and prevent you from being who God wants you to be. You have access to Jesus. But he says, no, I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody. You see, this brings about isolation. What happens when we allow our inabilities to become our identity is we begin to isolate ourselves, just like the example that I just gave you. Someone, you know, something happened, somebody made them mad or didn't do what they wanted, and then, you know, they don't come to church anymore. What are, what are they doing? They're isolating. They're isolating. You see, this brings about isolation, and it causes you to believe that you are alone, and you're the only person this has ever happened to. It's never happened to anyone else. You're the only person by the pool of Bethesda. No one else is there. It's just you. Right? That's what he's saying without saying that. I mean, it's so irrational. No one can help me, but yet you're you're the second or third or 50th to get in the water. So someone is present. But what the devil does is he begins to focus in on your inability and the excuses that you've allowed to infiltrate your life. And all of a sudden, you begin to blame other people and you isolate yourself and you remove yourself from any exposure to anything of God to where you believe what you're doing is right. He believed that laying there for 38 years justified his actions. Think about this. You see, the limitations in our beliefs about God in no way restrict His abilities. In zero ways. You don't think He can do it? It doesn't matter what you think. He can do, according to Ephesians 3.20, far exceedingly above what we could ask or imagine. And so here's this guy, and he didn't say, will you heal me? He doesn't say, you're the Son of God, do something. He doesn't say, take me to heaven or fill in the blank, anything that you and I would have said in front of Jesus in that moment. He says, oh, nobody will help me. So what does Jesus say? Oh, that's too bad. Well, good luck. No, of course he doesn't say that. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk, verse 8. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus looked past his excuses, and he gave him a reason to hope. A reason to live. Jesus did for him far beyond what he thought was possible. You see, in our circumstances, we only see the small potential outcomes. And for this man, the only outcome was his efforts. The only outcome was his efforts. Efforts, might I remind you, that he no longer possessed the capacity to perform. Right? He no longer possessed the capacity to do what he thought was only possible to cure him. Get in the water, right? So then think about you and me and our circumstances. We often only see the small potential outcomes that we think are possible. It never crossed this guy's mind, I might be walking today. That's not what he thought. He he never thought, hey, could you do something about it? Hey, do you know somebody? Hey, could you pray for me? No, none of those things. He began to whine and complain about what he couldn't do. And he never imagined that the guy in front of him, the Son of God, was about to radically change his life forever. I mean, think about this story. He never imagined God would heal him that day. And that's the very thing that God did. So what is it in the mountain that you're facing, in the circumstance and the inability and the excuse that you find yourself in that is far beyond reason that could potentially be the outcome? And I would say to you, that's the very beginning of what God could possibly do. It was Jesus who stepped into his world, and he radically expanded his thoughts of possible. Look, I'm telling you, for me, I can't speak for you, but there's a lot of times in my life where I need Jesus to radically step into my life and expand what I think is possible. You see, it was not the man, it was not what he did that changed the situation. It was what Jesus did. Look at the parallels here. Crippled for 38 years, can't get in the water. If I could just get in the water, I would be healed. And what happens? 
Oh, this is good. Think about this. What happens? What did he do? He just said, if I could just do better, if I was stronger, if I was better, if I was faster, then I could get in the water and then I would be healed. And Jesus said, do nothing and now you're healed. Think about that. Think about that for you and for me, that I don't have to be better. I don't have to be smarter. I don't have to do more. I don't have to perform. I don't have to be the best because Jesus said, I love you just the way you are in your sinfulness, in your inability to be perfect. I love you and I give you salvation, not because you earned it, but because I love you and you don't have to do anything to get it. The man went from I've got to do to get and Jesus said, I just gave to you and you did nothing, my friend. He laid there, and Jesus said, get up, pal. We're about to start walking. It wasn't what he did. It is what Jesus did. And let me say this to you. Whatever situation you find yourself in, it will be solved not because of what you did. It will be because of what Jesus did. So often in our desperation, what we want to do is seek activity. But often our activity is not the answer. We want to do something, right? We want to do something. Listen, there's a difference in being patient and being passive. There's a difference. When I'm patient, I'm doing my part and expecting while waiting on God to do His part. But when I'm passive, I'm not doing anything. I'm doing nothing. And there's a lot of people who mistake patience and passivity. There's a lot of people in church who are very passive. They're not involved in the kingdom work. They're not doing the things of God. And they're saying, oh, well, I'm waiting on God to move. No, you're not. You're not expecting God to move. You're, you're just where you are. This guy's being passive. He's not being patient. Here's a man who seemingly had the answer within his reach for 40 years. For 38 years, the answer to his problems were 10 feet away. And yet today, as he stands before Jesus, before Jesus tells him to stand up, he is no closer to being changed than the first day someone lay him beside the pool. And for you and for me, when we have problems that we allow to become excuses, that allow to to become our identity... We are no closer to solving that problem today than the very first day we encountered that problem. And it wasn't until Jesus spoke, until Jesus did something, that his life changed. So the Jews, verse 10, said to the man who had been healed, Hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. He's still blaming And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now this is not the response I would have expected. So they go up to this guy and they say, hey, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. And he says, but that guy told me to pick it up. That's not what I would have said. I would have said, look at what's happening here. Do you not see me? I'm walking. For 38 years, I laid over there. So here's what you can do with your Jewish Sabbath law, buddy. You can rip that thing in half, and I'm going to be running the next city marathon, all right? I'm going to be involved in everything. Mr. Temple Lawgiver, whatever you want, Mr. Scribe who interprets the laws, look, my femurs are working. Do you not remember the picture of me on Facebook last week laying by the pool? And now all of a sudden I can walk. I couldn't care less what you think, sir. Right? I mean, that's what we all would say. Bro, I don't care what you think. I'm walking. So you can do whatever you've got to do. But that's not what he said. Oh, no. He's still in his mind. His inabilities still define him. Right? And so he says, oh, it wasn't me. I'm blaming. It, it, It was this guy that told me to do it. It's quite different from the blind man that we find a few chapters later in John 9 who had been born blind, who had never seen in his life. His entire life had been dark from day one, verse 24 of John chapter 9. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, Jesus healed him, 
And they called this blind man up and they said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, this is awesome, verse 25. He said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. What a word, right? What a word. All of our testimony. I was blind, but now I see. Here's Mr. Lame by the pool for 38 years, and he doesn't say, I was crippled, but now I'm walking. He says, wasn't my fault, wasn't me. I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, look at the response. You see, Jesus opened the door for him. He set the opportunity that was before him. The blind man and the crippled man had the same result, that Jesus intersected their life and he did something radical for them. And yet their responses are different. Afterwards, verse 14, Jesus found the lame man in the temple. And he said to him, see, you are well, exclamation mark. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. To which I would be very careful the rest of my life if Jesus said that, right? The man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. What a snitch, right? And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. I am working. Can I suggest to you tonight that that is still true? That he is still working? That he is still working? You see, the Jews were more interested in the law than the person. But Jesus was more interested in the person. I met somebody today who was down on the luck. And I got to share the gospel with them. And I said, here's what I want you to know. God intersected my path with yours today. And what I want you to know today is that God sees you. I want you to know that God sees you. You see, I think so oftentimes in our life, we think that God doesn't see us. And then we find ourselves in these inabilities or these uh, positions to where, you know, we feel like we're in the valley and we've got all these things that are against us. And we feel like God doesn't see us. And this, this man that was by the pool for 38 years, I know there came a point to where he thought, you know what? God doesn't see me anymore. And so Jesus saw this person. It says there was a man. Jesus saw this one person out of all the people that were there. Jesus saw Nicodemus out of all the people that were there. Jesus sees you in the midst of your situations. He sees me in the midst of those situations. He saw the man today that I encountered in his situation because that's who Jesus is. He is the one who goes to the individual. He is the one who intersects our life. He is the one who changes our inabilities into abilities for His glory. And so for us, we must look beyond our realities. The reality for this man by the pool was that, in fact, he did have a deficiency. He had an inability. It had prevented him from doing things in life that other people had done. But it did not prevent Jesus from doing something in his life. And so for you and for me, whatever may be encountered in our life, we can look at that situation and say, you know what? That is not keeping God from working in my life. Because that's the entire goal of the enemy is to what? To kill, to steal, John 10, 10, and to destroy But Jesus said in the same verse, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. This man never imagined the outcome that would happen in his life because he had a small view of what was possible. You see, this man had more issues than his disability. He had a very narrow view of God. He had a very narrow view of God. He couldn't see the possibilities that were in front of him because of the problems that were behind him. Let me say that again. He could not see the possibilities that were in front of him because of the problems that were behind him. Think of the testimony that this man has. Think of what God has done in his life. I mentioned earlier that for the rest of Jonah and David and Moses and uh, and Paul's life, and Thomas, that we talk about their inabilities. 
But you know what the reality is? We talked about the fact that God overcame their inabilities, right? Because what did Moses do? He ended up being a part of parting the Red Sea, of the fact that God provided for the Israelites for 40 years, day in and day out, that he led the Israelites all the way to the promised land. David became a man after God's own heart. Paul arguably is one of the greatest Christians to ever live, and God used him to expand the kingdom across the globe. He was one of the catalysts for that. All of the examples, Jonah, what what happened with Jonah? Jonah went to the Ninevites, and the Ninevites repented and believed in God, and many people were saved because of what God did through Jonah in their life. And so in our life, we would say, we would look at this situation and we would say, look at all these problems that are behind me and I can't get in the pool and this person goes before me and I've got all these inabilities and I just don't have the things that I need to do what I think I need to do. And God shows up and said, you know what? You don't need those things because you have me and that's enough. I can do for you what that water will never do for you. Jonah saw in his life that God could do in his life what he could never imagine the anger for the Ninevites could do in his life. The things that David lusted for in his life never filled him like how God filled him in his life. We could go on and on. The reality is what God offers is far greater than the excuses and the inabilities in which we attribute credit to. Stop giving power to something that has no power. All of these stories we have covered for the last nine weeks have one thing in common. And it is the encouragement for you and for me tonight and for every situation that we encounter in which we think that there is no possible good outcome. That is that Jesus shows up, in most cases unannounced, and he does something beyond our expectations. The morning that this man woke up for the 38th year in a row, expecting the waters to be stirred, expecting to be the last to get into the water, expected to add another day to the calendar in which he was unable to do something that he wanted to do, and yet that was the day that God radically changed his life. What an amazing story to which he had to tell from that point and for the rest of eternity. And one day, hopefully one day in heaven, we will stand in heaven and we'll have an opportunity to talk to this guy because I hope that what God did in his life showed him who God was and that he turned his life just like Jesus did, Jesus said for him to do, to Jesus. And he began to follow. And we'll, begin, we'll get a chance to talk, about him, talk to him about those 38 years. And what that was like. But most of all, that one day when Jesus said, hey, you know those legs haven't been working for 38 years? It's time to use them. And he told him to get up. And so for you and for me, here's what I would say to to us. Is that God saying to us, it's time to use your legs. I can do whatever you, uh, far beyond whatever you and I think he could do. That whatever we think, imagine that he could possibly have the outcome to be. And yet Jesus, he, listen, here's what Jesus is not going to do. He's not going to argue with you about your excuses. He didn't look at the, the lame man and say, now, wait a minute, buddy. You know, I sent this person by and you didn't respond and I did this. And he's not, he didn't address any of that. He heard all the excuses and they went right over him. And he said, no, here's what you need. And he gave him what he needed. And so that's my prayer for you and for me is that in moments like this, that we would just look to the one who's right in front of us because he knows what we need. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing story. Oh, gosh, what an amazing illustration of your love for us. God, the way that you...